is that definition of success, is that coming from society? Is that coming from culture? Is that coming from my family? Is that coming from my boss and my friends? Or is that coming from me? That's really, really the crux of getting unstuck is basically resetting your parameters so that they're no longer on the default setting of society and resetting them to be owned by you. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the P&G Alumni Podcast. I'm Roman Segel, Recovering Marketer. And I'm Andrew Tarvin, Humor Engineer. Roman and I both got our start at P&G, the Procter & Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at P&G. In this series, through conversations with fellow PNG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know, but want to know more about. It's kind of like being a fly on the wall for my mentoring coffees. On today's show, we're talking to PNG alumni leader Alexandra Warbass. Alex is currently at Lyft leading up executive development. This was a really good conversation about not just career leaps, because she's made some, but also the importance of kind of self-awareness and kind of knowing what you're good at, what your limits are, et cetera. Yeah, and, and she has a really fascinating story of why she kind of got focused into that. But uh, first, here's a, a quick bio. As an executive coach in leadership development at Lyft, Alex's passion is helping people get unstuck to live fuller, more meaningful lives. As one of Lyft's first 100 employees starting in 2013, she helped launch the company in several major cities like New York, Chicago, Boston, Detroit, and Houston, setting up all operations across hiring, training, and local demand gen in partnership efforts. Prior to joining Lyft, Alex was a consumer insights manager for P&G's prestige for portfolio of brands in New York, like Dolce & Gabbana, Lacoste, and Hugo Boss. Alex is also an accomplished yoga instructor, having completed hundreds of hours of training of bhakti vinyasa, and is a certified life coach, which really informs her leveraging mindfulness and meditation in her coaching practice to cultivate more conscious leadership. Yeah, her stories of being an early employee at an unproven startup really hit close to home for me. It's something I personally relate to from my post PNG years, but. Drew, uh, one other thing I caught in there was yoga. That, that's not my thing. What about you? Are you a, are you a yogi? Uh, I don't know if I'm a full on yogi, but um, I do yoga sometimes. And in fact, uh, uh, my fiance Sabrina took me for my to my very first yoga class uh, here in New York City, and I remember going, and I had no idea what was going on. Like I didn't know any of the poses by name or anything, so I just like followed what Sabrina did the entire time. And we went through like all the zoo poses. We did like cat cow and pigeon pose and cobra and all of that. And we get to the very end, which is when you do vinyasa, the like laying down one. And we're laying there uh, and and Sabrina kind of like very sweetly reaches over and, and grabs my hand, you know, which is adorable as we're just kind of resting there. But again, I was like mirroring everything that she did. So I I just reached over and Grab the hand of the man next to me, <laughs> which great for I'm very sure, awkward I'm, I'm sure, that, I'm sure that really helped him. I'm sure that helped him. Yeah, it's all helpful and everything. And so now I go with her every now and then. And it's, and it's actually a really good way to, you know, take a break from the day and, and reduce some stress as an entrepreneur. Well, so that's something else in this interview but that Alex talks about. But what's been your startup experience post P&G? 
Uh, well, I mean, I started a company that counts. <laughs> I keep forgetting. As, as a startup experience. It has, yeah. And, and what's interesting, though, is I remember, you know, people sometimes ask me what's the biggest difference between, you know, P&G life and startup life. And first of all, you know, sometimes I'll joke that, like, my manager is always constantly changing his mind, not quite sure, not always happy with all the things that I'm doing. And, of course, that manager is me. Like, and that's, that's the difference is that PNG, I remember, you know, I'd have these very strong, valuable leaders where it's like, if I'm not entirely sure what I need to do, they could give that perspective and guidance. Whereas, you know, as an entrepreneur, sometimes in startups, you don't have as many strong leaders around you to guide you. So uh, a lot of it's just kind of figuring it out and making it up as you go along. Yeah. You know, the first time, um, well, when I, when I got out of Procter, the first thing you learn is how much you know. You don't know how much you know until you've left. And what I discovered at my first startup is I was, I was the old guy in the room. And, and I was in my 30s. But the people around me, the, the younger folks, um, their energy, their talent, honestly, their talent, uh, it just, it's infectious and sometimes more than I had. And the thing you have to do is you have to roll up your sleeves and be that values-driven leader for them. There are no other departments. Everyone's wearing lots of hats. There's very little insulation from the market. And it's, it's a really valuable experience to go to a small company or to start your own thing, I think. Yeah, and I think in many ways, for many people, it can be. But I think the other thing, and this is what I really liked about talking with Alex, is what she said is, you know, just as a startup may not be for everyone, not every type of, you know, work is for everyone. And, and she really focused on and helps the executives at Lyft focus on the fact that you have to define success for yourself. So uh, I know people are going to really enjoy the insights that she shares, the uh, wisdom that she has kind of around specifically uh, thinking about your career uh, over the long haul. And I know people are really going to enjoy uh, enjoy the conversation with Alex. So let's jump right in. Alex, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Excellent. I'm, I'm excited to chat with you as well, because our audience is mostly mid-career professionals like me trying to navigate the balance of work and life and figuring out career transition, maybe what's next and all of that. And I know hearing your experience and advice will be incredibly valuable to hear. So I want to jump right in. Now, many may already know your professional story. So you graduated uh, from U of M, University of Michigan, which as a fellow, as a Buckeye, that's disgusting to have to say, but <laughs> still blue. excited to have you. Right? Uh, you graduated there with a degree in economics, political science. You started out uh, early in your career at Procter & Gamble, uh, working in consumer insights for P&G Prestige. But then you moved companies and across the country to uh, Lyft, where you help them do a number of different things, but currently now working in executive development. So we're going to cover a wide range of things. But before we jump into kind of even the career things now, I want to go back to, you know, you're growing up in Michigan, uh, growing mm -hmm. up in the mitten of the state. Did you, did you imagine, is this kind of what you planned out for your career? Is this what you thought you were going to be? Did little, you know, 10-year-old Alex grow up and say, I want to do executive development? <laughs> I mean, definitely not. I only even learned what executive development was just a few years ago. And for those that aren't in the know, it's just another, another word, another phrase for leadership development. So growing up, I come from a family of healthcare professionals. Um, I come from a long line of actually psychiatrists, psychologists, and therapists, as well as a lot of 
kind of standard uh, physicians as well. So really, is that, so is, yeah. that, is that challenging growing? Is that like, so if, if with a whole family of therapists, is that like you can't even say anything because they're automatically analyzing everything? Uh, <laughs> is my mom listening to this podcast? <laughs> so um, I, you know, it was just what I knew. So I don't, I didn't think it was weird. I didn't, I didn't know that it wasn't normal to kind of in depth, analyze your feelings at the dinner table or hear gross stories from the hospital. So it all just seemed pretty normal to me. Oh, fantastic. And so then is, is that what you thought you wanted to be? Did you want to grow up and, and go into psychiatry or into the hospital? Or did you have other dreams as a, as a little kid of what you might do? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, I was always really fascinated. So my mom is a psychiatrist. I was always really fascinated with what she did, but she actually encouraged me not to go into the field because there's a strong, just a really high rate of emotional burnout. So honestly, I wasn't quite sure. I, I dabbled with a lot of ideas as a kid. I wanted to be a Supreme Court justice for a while. I thought that would be really cool. You know, what I wanted a fantastic to- <laughs> childhood. Dream. I just imagine you like a t- like a, as a Halloween costume is going as Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Or exactly. Something. Exactly. I, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I have a big love for animals. Thought I wanted to be a vet, but really, um, I thought, eh, you know, when I went to college, I thought, well, maybe I'll be a doctor. I was actually pre med for a couple of years. I, I I knew nothing about business frankly, because no one in my family was really in the business field. So it was only meeting a few people, really instrumental people in college uh, that I changed my course. So. Okay. What was it like kind of growing up? Do you remember the first way that you earned money, what that first kind of job was? (laughs) Well, (laughs) uh, I was a very entrepreneurial child. So the very first way I earned money, um, I believe I was, let's see, six or seven years old and my family lived near a golf course and what would happen is golfers would kind of hit their golf balls into a a forest near our house so my brother and i would go into the forest we'd gather all these golf balls we'd wash them and then i would sneak onto the golf course (laughs) and actually sell golf balls back to unsuspecting golfers so seven-year-old me, you know, going out there in my little dress, trying to charm all these golfers. And I actually did pretty well until my budding business was shut down by the management. (laughs) (laughs) That's a fantastic business. Do you remember how much the golf balls were? Was it like a good, Uh, good markup? I mean, I think I only charged it. I think I charged a dollar a ball, but for a seven-year-old, that was like pretty amazing. So oh, it's incredible. What did you do with the money? Did you save it up? Did you spend it on candy or, or on I, toys? Or? I, I had a horse fund going for a really long time. So <laughs> like many uh, young girls. So I believe it went into my horse fund. Never got uh, the horse, but did actually save a fair amount towards it. So oh, that's very cool. All right. So you're, you know, you're, you're selling people golf balls, you get a little bit older, you go to University of Michigan with degree in, you know, economics, political science. So you can certainly see a little bit of that Supreme Court justice maybe still in your head, but pre-med as well. And then you, you graduate and you end up at Procter & Gamble. Was that the first job right out of college or do you have something in between? So, so no, I think there's like two critical juncture points. So just to kind of backtrack to Mm -hmm. college, because I think it it doesn't necessarily make sense if you hear pre-med and then see what my degrees were in. But Essentially, I was pre-med for both my freshman and sophomore year of college. And there was actually a really defining moment where I was shadowing a bunch of doctors over the summer 
And I was standing with my dad. Um, someone had graciously allowed us to watch a uh, surgery and it was quite intense. They had opened this person's chest. We were looking inside and my dad said to me, Alexandra, this is as cool as medicine gets. Isn't this exciting? And I remember thinking, nah, not really. (laughs) So it was one of those kind of first aha moments where I decided, you know what? Medicine is probably not for me. I have so much respect for everyone that goes into it. My little sister is actually in med school right now. Um, But I really, I realized that it just wasn't for me. So it was actually then when I went back to college, my junior year, um, I ended up taking an intro to marketing class and had the best teacher I ever had in all of college. Shout out to you, Jim Mori, for really being my first mentor in marketing. So that's what set me on the path eventually to P&G. Um, so my first job was actually not at Procter & Gamble. I worked at a wonderful place called GFK Strategic Innovation. And it was a small boutique consulting firm that did innovation um, and helped actually big companies like Procter & Gamble develop new brands. So it was a really, really wonderful, fun first job with a lot of introduction to consumer insights. So I did that for about a year before uh, I went to Procter & Gamble. I worked on a lot of new pet food brands, actually, which, again, as an animal lover, was a lot of fun. So Right, yeah, connected back kind of still in that that childhood dream. And no, I think that's a fascinating kind of point of this recognition of, okay, if this is supposed to be the coolest thing about this profession I'm thinking about and I'm not super excited about it, maybe I should go a different direction. And it's amazing sometimes what a teacher or someone who is passionate about something can instill in you. So you, you go this direction. So you're then working and you get to... PNG and did you like then fall in love with things like consumer insights like how did you discover you know what you were passionate about that this was an area to continue to explore Yeah well it's it's such a good question um for me again it actually again gets back to that childhood theme of being the daughter of a psychiatrist and a family member of all these psychologists uh because Really, what I loved about consumer insights and what I loved about marketing was how it was the blend of the creative psychology and the analytical. And I thought, oh, this is so cool how I can take all of these things that I'm interested in and really apply them to a career. And in my very first job, I was exposed to a lot of consumer insights. I did a ton of qualitative research. So things like ethnographies, where we'd go into the homes of consumers and interview them, similar to how you're interviewing me, um, but about different topics like toothpaste and uh, pet food and things like that. And I just loved it because more than anything, I love really deeply connecting with people, hearing their stories and, and hearing what motivates them. And and that you'll see is a thread throughout my life. So I I was really introduced to it in my first job. And then at Procter, I actually, that was my whole job, consumer and market insights. So I really, really enjoyed digging to that part of my career there. Yeah, for sure. And and how much can you learn about toothpaste? Like you use it twice a day. Is there <laughs> is there more to it? Are, are you like, where people are like, give us bacon toothpaste and that's why it came out? Like, <laughs> So that's a really great question. And Drew, I don't know. Did you ever get the chance um, at P&G to go on any types of consumer interviews? I never did. I was on the IT side. So yeah. I was, you know, behind the scenes helping you figure out the, you know, uh, uh, what did we have? Zoom? What was that called? When no, we had, I don't we, think we had Zoom. What did we have? Uh, no, not this Zoom, but I think it was oh. iZoom. It was called iZoom. It was a, it was a, I was working with then CBD uh, uh, as a different uh, yes, area. So. Yes. 
no, I, I had, you know, kind of almost like these types of calls, but in my clients were internal P and G people and they're like, make this button red. And so we had to like, <laughs> all right, make the button red. Um, yeah. So we never get to go into any of those types of calls. Got it. Yeah. So I would say with consumer research, um, it's, it's different for each category. So some categories are much more emotionally involved than others. So for instance, pet food for me, especially, um, especially if you talk to the pet parent segment, oh, so fun. These people can go on for hours and hours and hours. And, and I even remember actually in some pet food research, this wasn't at Proctor, but, um, she said to me, my whole reason for living is my dog. And it just, wow, it just struck me right in the heart. So, um, some categories you can go really, really deep other categories. If people aren't so engaged, eh, you know, you can still learn a lot of course, but it's not, it might not feel like that same, wow, deep, powerful connection. I worked in fragrance though at Procter and Gamble. And so People got very excited about their fragrance. So <laughs> definitely we could we could spend a lot of time talking about that too. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, and, and I for me as an engineer living in, you know, Cincinnati and then moving to New York to work at Prestige, it was like I didn't even know that you, there were different notes in fragrances yeah. and like, you know, uh, uh, what smells can elicit and create and build and all that. So it then interesting you hit an interesting point cuz like you're working in in PNG in New York City doing consumer insight for these fragrances and then you know you take a leap and the next thing you know you're in San Francisco yeah uh, across the country no longer working for PNG uh then starting to work at Lyft uh what happened? What was the, the switch cuz I know a lot of you know our listeners are thinking about transition and people have made you know everyone kind of I think comes to a, a fork in the road of their career. And there clearly was some fork and you took like the hard left or the hard right <laughs> from where you're going. What was, what happened there? That's a, it's a really great question, Drew. So um, at the time when I was working at Procter Gamble, I basically became sort of involved with a new friend group that was really into startups. And so a bunch of them were startup founders um, and they were all just so jazzed, so passionate about changing the world in a really hands-on way. And of course at Procter, we're really focused on improving people's lives um, in many different ways. But what was so interesting to me about these founders is that they were building things from the ground up, you know, with their hands. I mean, with their hands, I mean, coding mostly, mm -hmm. um, but they were just so passionate about whatever their particular slice of changing the world was. And I, I, I just really feed off that kind of energy off kind of building new things from the ground up. And, and really everything I had worked on at PNG, I got the most energy one, if I was connecting with consumers, but two, if I was building something from scratch. And depending on what kind of business unit you're in at Proctor, you know, in some roles, you're going to be able to build a lot from scratch and some you're going to be more focused on optimizing and optimizing just wasn't really my strength. So I just got very, very excited by all of these new people I was meeting. And uh, I was, this is kind of funny. This is like being a trader to Lyft, but I was actually um, a very early Uber user when I worked, um, when I was living in New York City and working for Proctor. And I thought it was just downright magical. It blew You were my like, mind. yes, I'm going to get into the uh, the car of a stranger and it's going to yeah. go perfectly. 
Oh, and eat their candy and everything. No, I just thought, how amazing is this? And, you know, to all of us these days, we're so used to it. It doesn't seem like magic. But back then, I don't know, eight years ago, you could press a button and a car would show up. That just was crazy to me. Um, So some friends out on the West Coast had said, oh, well, have you heard of Lyft? It's it's, uh, a really community-oriented version of Uber. And I was like, oh, no, I haven't because it it wasn't in New York City at the time. And I was on vacation in Chicago, took a few Lyft rides. And I asked the drivers, you know, what do you think about Lyft? And these two drivers said to me, it's the best thing I've ever done in my life. And I was like, what? You're crazy. How is this the best thing you've ever done in your life? And they just told me these stories of just empowerment and how they were debt-free for the first time in their life, or their photography career was taking off because they were able to quit their bartending gig, or they were able to relax and they did this for fun to connect with people because their regular job was being a 911 dispatcher. Just all of these amazing stories, human connection and like economic empowerment. And I was like, wow, I want to be a part of this. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's sort of how I jumped jumped into the back then, furry pink mustache land of Lyft, which everyone thought I was crazy for, by the way. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's the, that's the thing is like, especially in, like, how did, how did the family feel about this decision? Because to, to leave a stable job like P&G and to, to be in New yeah. York to then go to a different city, new job, what was their, like, did their thinking factor <laughs> into it? What would they say? How did you feel about that? Yeah. I mean, so my parents, um, you know, they're very traditional professionals, both went to graduate school. Um, they were very happy with the idea of me working at Procter and Gamble. They're like, you know, you have a great 401k. This is amazing. You know, it's, you've been wanting this job since college, which it was all true, right? All so true. Worked with super smart, great people. So they were definitely a little concerned, as were my coworkers, actually. So all of my coworkers at Proctor were like, Alex, you're joining this 100-person startup? Like, what are you thinking? And I just made everyone feel better by saying, you know, if it doesn't work out, I'll just go get my MBA. And everyone said, okay, okay. Like that's, that's a fine response. (laughs) Which is kind of crazy if you think about it. Hey, my backup plan is to not make any money and (laughs) potentially take on debt to get an education. Yes. It's a fantastic idea. Well done. I was young. I was young. That's all I have to say. But, uh, I think there's just a tradition actually somehow the kids in my family have all taken big risks. My brother actually left college, left Michigan with a year to go to pursue a career in professional cycling. So I don't know what my parents put in the water when we were growing up, but uh, we, we all kind of took some big, big leaps. Um, but thankfully, knock on wood, it's, it's worked out so far. So yeah. And so what was, what was that transition, that, that difference like, because I know, you know, some, some oh, of the people God. listening, maybe <laughs> mostly know the, the big kind of company feel, what differences did you notice that you like, didn't like between wow. you know, P&G and early days Lyft? Well, I think the first probably most superficial difference was, uh, I was one of the oldest people at Lyft at 26 or 25, which was... <laughs> shocking to say the least. I was like, well, this is certainly different. I was used to always being the youngest person in, at least in my office at at Proctor. And now I was all of a sudden one of the most tenured people. So that was a little bit, uh, concerning, but exciting at the same time. You know, it really felt 
the best way I can describe it is it sort of felt like joining a uh, a student organization. So, Drew, I don't know, were you involved in in many student orgs at OSU? Yeah, we uh, I did a couple of different things. I was an RA, but the the biggest one in in my start into improvisation that led me on this, you know, path yeah. of, of humor in the workplace started at P at, at Ohio State with starting an improv group. So yeah, we Amazing. were a student organization, kind of like you said, that building from the from yeah. the foundation, from the scratch, from the ground up. Um, so I can kind of see what you're saying from that perspective. And so that's exactly it. That same energy, that same drive, that same passion and the same zeal and the same kind of chaos and disorganization (laughs) (laughs) was all part of it. But, you know, that's that's really what I feed off of is is the energy of the other people and building things from scratch. So for me, I was just really excited to sink my teeth in. Um, So, you know, that comes comes with pros and cons, although I have to say one of the biggest uh, things I was really grateful for at Proctor was all of the amazing training that they gave us and all of the amazing um, managers that we worked mm-hmm. with. Because the most kind of startling thing when I transitioned to Lyft, um, you know, back then it was only 100 people, quite small, uh, is at these startups, no one had had any training on how to be a manager on how to write a good email, on how to build a presentation, you know, all these really simple things we take for granted. I realized, whoa, I learned so much more at Proctor than I realized. Um, And I was just so grateful for that training because I actually became a boss of, I think, 15 people very shortly. (laughs) And um, I was just so grateful for that training and and really tried to share what I learned at Proctor um, with my colleagues and, and with my directs. So... Yeah, so I mean, really that's big shift. That's part of the reason this podcast exists, is right. So many people talk about when leaving P and G, what they appreciate it was the people, right? Their managers, right. and and part of that is the uh, you know promote from within culture and giving leadership training and things like that. And so that's why we want to chat. What are people then doing with that that knowledge and insight? So it it sounds like, and it seems like I've, I've heard from other people that part of the value sometimes of working at a, a startup is you get your chance to sink your teeth into a lot of different things, maybe that you wouldn't necessarily at a big company. Did you feel that as well? Were you able to then, yeah, you start talking, you know, start working with as, as a manager of 15 others pretty quickly. <laughs> and, you know, I know you go through a couple of different roles. Did you feel that while there at Lyft? Oh, yeah. I mean, one of my favorite things actually still at Lyft is if you have an idea and you can make a business case, you can pretty much go do it tomorrow. So, um, you know, I built our first local marketing team of marketing managers across the country. Um, I helped launch Lyft in about a hundred cities in three months at one point in my career. I helped bring Lyft to Canada. So, you know, I really got to sink my teeth into a lot of really huge meaty projects. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's been a blast. So, so yes, 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 yes. To answer your question. Yeah. And so you, you're at Lyft, you're, you're there, you're, you're living in the Bay area, enjoying mm-hmm. the, the San Francisco life. And you've done a number of different, uh, kind of roles within Lyft. And now you're doing this thing called, uh, executive development, which you said is yeah. kind of like leadership development. Is that, is that a natural marketing extension? That seems like kind of another slight pivot 
um, or maybe I'm wrong, but how, how do you go from kind of the launching and marketing side of things and then get into this exec- executive development side? Yeah, it's, it's really, it's a very good question. So I wouldn't say it's the most natural flow um, from marketing other than there is still, of course, that kind of human insight and psychology bit behind it. Um, my story is pretty interesting, actually. So a few years ago, I basically went through a rough point in my career. Um, I was I was in a in a role that was more operational. It was kind of less suiting my skills and strengths, and and frankly, I was really burned out. I had been working literally. Here's another difference: uh, literally until 11 p.m. every night for many years, and I was just burned out. And so I went through kind of this period of just of really questioning myself, my priorities, things like that. And I started to really realize, oh my God, my entire identity is work. I need, I need to change something about this. Like that can't be my only reason for existing. So, yeah. um, and, and so when you say that, and yeah. I'm curious of like, yeah. cause sometimes did you know while it was happening that you were in burnout? Like what were the signals? Yeah. Like, cause it, it sounds like you probably have some perspective on it afterwards. Like, oh, looking back, you know, oh, working till 11 every single night, probably like that. It's like, were, were there signals that you see now that you maybe could, mm. didn't notice at the time, but were signals now for people to, to recognize, oh, maybe they're having a similar like feeling of burnout? You know, it's such a good question. And I think I probably don't have the best answer because it didn't feel like burnout to me, Drew, because I was so energized by what I was doing. Typically, I was very energized by what I was doing, but you know, everyone else around me was, and I even remember our old COO at Lyft, who obviously much more senior than me saying, Alex, you know, it's 10 PM. Why are we the only two people here? He was like, he commuted to Seattle. So, um, he was like, I have nowhere else to be like, you should be doing something with your life. And so I think other people around me noticed, uh, but I was just so driven. So in the mix that it took it basically what happened the way I realized was I became quite depressed for thankfully only a short period of time. My hair started turning gray and I just, it was luckily right before a holiday break. And, um, I just had the insight to be like, wait a second, something is really wrong here. Like, why are you feeling this way? Just about work? Like, that's not your whole life. You're healthy, mm-hmm. you're happy, or you know, you have a great family, you have great friends, you live in a beautiful place, you work for a great company. Like, this just doesn't make sense. So I basically entered this questioning period and um I started working with an executive coach, uh, which was really transformational for me. I did yoga teacher training, which I realize is a bit cliche uh these days, or at least <laughs> in the Bay Area, but that was a huge part. Um, I really started diving into mindfulness and building my own spiritual practice. And, and basically I somehow, uh, found myself in an introductory coaching class. And, you know, again, the thread here, um, that you'll see that's been really kind of the through point, I think with all the things, whether it's college or being a child of psychiatrist is, I really loved connecting deeply with people or whether it was being a manager and managing a lot of direct reports. That's really where I always got my energy. And so uh, I really, I just love this coaching class. It really validated me in so many ways uh, where I was really lauded for what we consider soft skills, right? Like, wow, you can connect with people so quickly. 
wow, your intuition is so powerful. Oh my God, you're a great listener. I was like, what? People care about these things? I thought you only cared like, yeah, about my financial modeling skills or something. So, (laughs) And do you remember how you got into that? Was it the executive kind of coach suggesting it? Was it like you you stumbled into it? You thought it was a yoga class, but it was a coaching <laughs> class and you stayed? Like, do you remember like how what the, the prompt was for even exploring it? Yeah. I mean, I had been talking to my coach because she had such a similar journey to me. She, um, I mean, a similar journey to many of us, right? She'd been a hard charging careerist. She went to Harvard Business School. She was a leader in tech. She burned out and then she became a coach. And so she was definitely a great role model for me. And so I was like, okay, this coaching thing, you know, I think that might be interesting. Talk to a few more friends who had really similar transitions. So that was the impetus. And, and basically after the first, uh, the first coaching class, I started practicing on friends and one of my friends did they, said, did they know yeah. that you were practicing with them? Oh, was yeah, it a, like, let's try? Okay. It wasn't a like secret, like here's a glass of wine. Now let no, me no, analyze. No. <laughs> no, no, that's the old way. Now it's very yeah. consensual, very explicit. <laughs> not, you're not sitting around my family's dinner table. Um, mm-hmm. So anyways, uh, yeah, I started practicing on some of my friends and some of them were like, well, can we keep going? And so I thought, well, gee, I need a lot more skills if we're going to keep going. And so I actually, I signed up for the rest of the classes and, and someone challenged me in one of the classes. We do these things where we challenge each other. There are these three day long intensive classes and we challenge each other to grow in different ways. And, and someone challenged me to find some paying clients by the next day. And I was like, that's crazy. It's a Saturday. 24 hours. Yeah. I'm like, how am I supposed to do that? And this was a few years ago when the kids were still back on Facebook, you know? And so I just posted on my Facebook, this sounds ridiculous. um, And kind of telling people what I was doing. And I was flooded with requests. Like overnight, I had a coaching practice just from one post on Facebook. Uh, so that's how my coaching practice was born actually a few years ago. Um, since then I've completed, you know, all the training and and have much, much more practice under my belt. Um, but yeah. And so that, that's how I got into coaching, which led ultimately to getting into leadership development at Lyft a little over a year ago. So, yeah. And so that, that, that's, I was curious about that. So you develop the skill of, of coaching and also this passion for it was, was it, you know, was this an example of what you talked about earlier with like, if you can make the business case for Lyft, they're like open to it. And you kind of shared this as an idea of this is what I think you, I want to do or were, did they notice kind of what you were doing? How did this, it seems like great kind of, you know, yeah. to, to be buzzword about it, synergy of like your passion and focus and maybe what the business needed, but how did that come yes. to be? So, um, something that one of my mentors at Proctor taught me was that having coffees with people was extremely important and perhaps just as important, if not more important than your day-to-day work. So I've always kind of taken that again, as a people person, I've always kind of taken that advice to heart. Um, so I actually, it was a bit natural in that a new woman was hired to build out our leadership development function at work. And She'd been a coach for about 20 years. So I just asked to have a coffee with her. And by the end of it, uh, she was just asked me, you know, do you want to help build this with me? I know she said, you know, look, I'm a subject matter expert in terms of leadership development and coaching, but I don't know anything about tech and I don't know anything about Lyft, but you sure do. Um, And you have the passion and you're a coach. And 
And so it was really just, it was the synergy of the business need, but I think, you know, still always being really proactive about reaching out, always meeting new people um, to help build those connections. And so, I mean, ultimately, yes, I did have to interview for the job with external candidates and all those things, but, uh, but yeah, landed the job a little over a year ago and, and haven't looked back since. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Today, we're talking to fellow alumni entrepreneur, Kyle Yamaguchi, co-founder of One for One Eyewear. One for One Eyewear is an independently owned eyewear brand that develops, designs, and distributes some great looking glasses. I'm actually wearing a pair right now. So Kyle, I got to ask, why eyewear? Well, about 10 years ago, uh, I was working for the man. I went to go pick up my glasses where I ended up meeting my wife. We started dating and while we were dating, we just got to talking about maybe one day starting a business. It's always been an aspiration of mine. So she knew all about the eyewear industry. I knew all about product creation. So we kind of put our two skills together and we decided to launch an eyewear brand. What's really cool about your brand is you have an interesting giving back component to it. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so for every pair of glasses that we sell, we give a pair away to a person in need. And we're using our own brand of frames to give those back to people in the community. And we work with organizations, both large and small. So for example, we just wrapped up a clinic in Seattle, uh, the King County Clinic. It's a huge event. And if that had been alone, we would give about 1,500 pairs of glasses. Um, We have about 500 stores across the country. And all of the stores have the opportunity to give back our frames to people within their community. So if they have somebody in who needs a pair of glasses, maybe they can't afford it. Uh, they can direct them to our section on their on their wall and choose one of our frames that will then ship them for free. Um, otherwise, we could send them like a donation kit that they can use. And as they are seeing folks in need, uh, they can offer those frames as a selection you know, to be able to receive. Yeah, what I love about that is it's even lower income people can almost like have greater confidence because they're wearing something that looks good, whether it's a haircut, a clean shave, a nice suit, great pair of glasses. Um, I think it helps people feel better about themselves. Yeah, I agree. You know, one thing that we've noticed, especially with these larger organizations, is that a lot of the frames they were giving out to people were these really old kind of frames that, that you would imagine like your grandma would wear, you know? And uh, when we came in, we were able to provide, you know, very newer and I mean they're they're the same frames that we're selling in our stores across the country so uh, folks were able to get a really good pair of glasses and also like you said you know have more confidence as they go try to get a job or just get back in the world and you've been doing this for 10 years now and you must have given away like thousands of frames by this point that's correct so this is our 10-year anniversary where can people find out more about one for one Kyle uh, just go to our website one for one eyewear.com At the top, you can click on retailers, and that will give you an idea of the stores across the country where our line is available. Great. Well, Kyle, thanks so much for doing the work you do, and best of luck out there. Cool. Thanks, man. And now back to the show. I know one of the things that you really help to to focus on within this practice and this focus is to, uh, you know, the idea of helping people get unstuck. Yeah, and so I guess to to start, what do, what does it mean to be stuck in mm-hmm. the first place? That's uh, such a good question. So I think stuck can really mean a lot of things, and people have different degrees 
of awareness around how stuck they might be. So stuck can be something like, oh God, I can't bear to go to work in the morning because I'm just so anxious about the thought of stepping into the office. Or stuck can be, um, uh, I've been in this, I've been in this relationship with a partner for a long time and and I just it's just really not working for me. Um, it, or it can be something so much more mild of just like, yeah, you know, I'm pretty happy at my life right now, but I, I have this niggling feeling or voice inside of me that's like, I want to do more. So so stuck can really mean a, a lot of different things for a lot of different people. And, and I would say most people are stuck in some aspect of their life, whether they know it or, or not. So it's really about that awareness, that self-questioning and self-inquiry process that helps you kind of shine a light on where one of us might be stuck. And is that kind of part of the, the key of getting unstuck as well? Is that part of that process? Then that that reflective process of, uh, you know, potentially someone asking the right questions and being reflective of kind of the the things that are good, things that are not so good? Yeah, exactly. So often what we do, um, at least in the coaching school that I went to, is when you first take on a new client, you sort of have them take an inventory of their life. So you have them take an inventory and actually score it. So how happy and fulfilled are you from one to 10 in terms of uh, career, in terms of money, in terms of health, in terms of your physical environment, in terms of friends and family, in terms of romantic relationship? And so you kind of have them take this inventory it's a super easy uh, exercise. It's called the wheel of life. Anybody can look it up. Um, and it's so simple and yet so powerful at the same time, because people look at that list and they're like, oh my God, I never even realized I was a four in work. Holy cow. Like I've just been going to the same job for the last six years and, and didn't even realize like, I'm not that happy. So yeah. So I would say awareness is definitely the first step in getting unstuck 100%. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, sometimes we do something because we made a decision of like, that's just what we do like seven years ago and have just been passively making that same decision again. Like I just made the decision in college that my breakfast was Pop-Tarts and that's, <laughs> that stayed true until probably like three years ago. Uh, and it's like, great, I'm an adult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I do not need to eat, you know, start every day with you know, 60 grams of sugar uh, via a Pop-Tart or something. So, all right. So we're going to start to, I want to move into a kind of a rapid fire round. This just helps us understand, uh, get to know you a little bit better. Yeah. Do you have time for another comment from me on the whole stuck business? Yes, absolutely. Okay, cool. So something I do want to say too, is I think just like you said with Pop-Tarts, Stuck can come in many ways from sort of just, you know, being asleep in our day to day, but also really what I love to highlight in my coaching and and just with people I'm mentoring in general is a lot of us basically have this track, I'm saying in quotation marks, that we're put on by society, right? So, you know, do well in school, get your A's, go to a good college, do well there, get a good paying job you know, have a family, settle down, have 2.5 kids, a dog and two cars, right? So many of us are put on what society, um, society's path and what they deem as success. And that is great. That works super, super well for a lot of people. And that is wonderful. But really, I think a lot of the process that I encourage people to do through self-inquiry and coaching and whatnot is to kind of look at, okay, what's the path that they're on right now? 
And is that path, is that definition of success, is that coming from society? Is that coming from culture? Is that coming from my family? Is that coming from my boss and my friends? Or is that coming from me? And so a really, really important tool we have is we help people start to understand what their own values are, what their own priorities are, and what kind of their inner voice has to say so that they can create their own compass to help guide and direct their life. So that's really, really the crux of getting unstuck is basically resetting your parameters so that they're no longer on the default setting of society and resetting them to be owned by you. And so that's, I just wanted to say that because that's actually, I think the most important work that so many of us, especially in the transition space can do is not saying like, what is my family want for me, but what do I want for me and what feels right? And that's going to really take you on the path to fulfillment. So sorry, I just wanted to say that before we moved on. Yes, no, I'm I'm happy that you did because I think you you raised that it's a, a very valid point for us to you know always be able to to check in because if you yeah, if you use those metrics of owning a home, white picket fence, two and a half kids like you said, the the dog, the cat, two cars and things like that, <laughs> I'm failing miserably. Uh, right? I <laughs> have an apartment here in New York City <laughs> and all of that. And yet, yeah, I'm very happy and and the work that I'm doing it sounds like you're very happy in the work that you're doing. And so Re, I like that, like what you said of of resetting the default position and kind of having that check. And then it goes back to what you mentioned about awareness as well is doing maybe that that wheel and checking in, not through the lens of what you know a scale of one to ten for society's expectations or you know other people's expectations, but your own one to ten and being truly you know authentic and real and answering that that question. Exactly. Excellent. Well, speaking of authenticity, uh, that's a smooth transition into our rapid fire question where you can just give a kind of quick answers based on uh, kind of what we share. So first question is morning person or night person? Night person trying to be a morning person. <laughs> Why is morning person supposed to be a quote unquote better thing? <laughs> I don't really know, but I can say for me, uh, I've gone into surfing. So if you want to be a surfer, you pretty much have to get up early before it gets too windy. So, so uh, there okay. you go. That is, that's fair. That's a good reason. I think that's a good reason. All right. Uh, what's your go-to kind of method of decompression? Are you TV, movies, books, podcasts, something else? Yeah. I mean, I'm a big yogi. So yoga and meditation are really, really important for me. But other than that, in terms of media, I really like podcasts as well as books. So yeah. Okay. Any, any podcast and or book that has like really resonated with you? Yes. Yes. So in the theme of kind of creating your own compass and, and rewriting your own rules, a book that I really recommend and, and give to everybody is called Designing Your Life. Um, it's by two Stanford Design School professors who basically took the principles of design thinking and apply it to designing your ideal and most fulfilling life. So I definitely recommend um, that book. And then in terms of podcasts, my favorite podcast, I have two favorite podcasts. Um, they're both in the mindfulness sphere. One is a podcast uh, named Tara Brock after Tara Brock, the founder of it. And it's just a lot of great meditations and wisdom. And then also uh, 10% Happier with Dan Harris, another really, he's just such a wonderful interviewer. Um, he's interviewing a lot of different meditation and, and mindfulness experts. So those are my two favorites. 
Yeah. And of course, the P&G Alumni Podcast. Oh, uh, and that one, yes, as well. <laughs> That's actually the top of my list. <laughs> Goes without saying. All right. And final, final rapid fire question. If you're communicating with people, do you prefer in-person phone or text? Oh, I mean, I'm just such an in-person person all the time, but closely followed by rapid fire text. So beware uh, if you ever start texting me. <laughs> yeah, you have that fun back and forth. Excellent. Uh, that back and forth banter for sure. Well, Alex, this has been a fantastic thing. As we close out, I want to ask one last question because, you know, it's not just we have the, you know, mid-career professionals and things like that, but we also have people who are our managers and leaders of others. And so we want to end on this of, you know, if you had one final piece of advice or even like a challenge of some sort that you would leave with the next generation, what would it be? Yeah. I mean, it just gets back to what I was just talking about, which is I really would challenge everybody to take a close look at their life and understand like, is where I'm at right now a result of where I want to be? or where society wants me to be. Um, so just taking that inventory, doing the wheel of life. Um, and I really challenge each one of you to just make one step in the direction of what your rules and what's right and most fulfilling for you. And that can be as small as changing your breakfast. So um, I'll leave it at that. Oh, that uh, is fantastic. Well, Alex, thank you so much for for joining us today. It was a fantastic interview, fantastic answers. Great to, to hear a little bit more. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much, Drew. Really appreciate it. And that's our show. Like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. Now, here's a preview of next week's episode. The learnings on the journey are part of the game, right? And the reason why I will not call it failures is uh, simply related to a matter of speed. It's all about taking learnings and doing things really fast that people cannot even see or think that you failed. Because your ability in uh, taking learnings, connecting the dots, uh, to move from those experiences, those learnings, into greater and more successful plans. That's it for this week. I've been Andrew Tarvin. And I'm still Roman Segel. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.